Well, good morning, everyone, and welcome to the start of the last section of the Gospel of John. We're looking this morning at chapter 12 of John's Gospel. So let's read the passage. It's quite a long passage. And if you're following it in the Black Pew Bibles, it's page 899. And we're starting at verse 12. This is the Lord arriving at Jerusalem, his final visit to Jerusalem. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered him, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. 
so that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe, for again Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory, that's Jesus' glory, and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And we'll end our reading there. Just let me remind you uh, briefly of the four journeys of the Lord Jesus in John's Gospel. Each journey, in each journey, the Lord went to Jerusalem for one of the feasts or festivals of the Jews, and then he returned to Galilee. His first journey, uh, where he met people like Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman, in that journey he revealed that God gives eternal life. He doesn't sell it, he gives it as a free gift in the Lord Jesus himself. In the second journey, this is where the Lord Jesus uh, feeds the 5,000 people miraculously and describes himself as the bread of life. In this journey, we see that God sustains or feeds eternal life. So the first one, God gives eternal life. The second journey, God sustains eternal life. The third journey, Jesus goes up to the feast, but he goes up in private with no publicity whatever. And he reveals himself in that section. It deals with how Christ reveals himself privately. We see him giving light to people as the light of the world. He speaks and he says, my sheep hear my voice. So by giving light and through his voice, he reveals himself in a low-key way. But we've just read that in this last journey, he comes to Jerusalem in a very public way. Uh, The crowds welcome him. They roll out the red carpet, as it were, with the palm branches. And Jesus arrives very publicly in Jerusalem. So let's uh, look at this, the passage that we read, in three short sections. First of all, we'll look at Christ coming to Jerusalem in what capacity? Verses 12 to 19. Then we'll look at why Christ was coming to Jerusalem in this last journey. What was his mission in Jerusalem? And we'll see that his mission was to die. And thirdly, uh, John uh, explains why people find it hard to believe in Jesus from verse 37 onwards. So first of all, let's look at how Christ comes to Jerusalem. We are given two quotations that the crowd sang or shouted whenever Jesus came riding on the donkey into Jerusalem. The crowd says, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Then they quote from Zechariah, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your King is coming, sitting on the donkey's coat. So in both of those quotations, the focus is on the Lord Jesus coming as king. And throughout this section, this last section of John's gospel, this last journey, John presents the Lord Jesus as king. Later we'll see when 
the confrontation between the Roman governor Pilate and the Lord Jesus, the conversation that they have, one of the key issues is whether or not Christ is king, and if so, what sort of king is he, and where is his kingdom? Pilate says, so you are a king then. And Christ says, my kingdom is not of this world. Later, Pilate presents the Lord Jesus to the crowd and says, behold your king. And the Jews reply in that fateful rejection of their messianic hope, we have no king except Caesar. Then the soldiers mock Jesus as king with a crown of thorns and a purple robe. So throughout this section, it's quite clear that John is presenting the Lord Jesus, and indeed the Lord Jesus himself comes as a king. Now that raises a couple of very important questions. If he is a king, where is his kingdom? Is there a country that he is king of? Has he an empire? And secondly, what sort of king is he? Well, the Lord himself will later explain that his kingdom is not of this world. His kingdom is in another world, in what we sometimes call heaven. Elsewhere it's called the world to come. The kingdom of Christ, it exists now, but it's not visible now. It's not a country. It's not an international organization. It's not what we call Christendom. There have been many attempts in history to set up Christ's kingdom here on earth as a political kingdom. But those attempts have been misguided and inevitably end in disaster. So what sort of king is Christ? If you've uh, maybe gone around Europe and you see statues or pictures of kings, famous kings, they're often pictured on riding a large horse, sometimes a white horse. But they're always raised up. They, they sit on a tall horse so that people have to look up to them, literally, so that they're visible and they present an image of power. That's what kings want to do, kings and presidents. They want to present an image of the power that they have. But in the Bible, God explicitly told the kings of Israel to ride on a donkey. Now, it's very humbling to ride on a donkey. A donkey is low down. You can look people straight in the eye. You're at the same level as the people when you sit on a donkey. You're not lifted up looking down on people. When you ride on a donkey, it's not a show of power. You're not saying that you govern through power. You're not asking people to be impressed by your power. Jesus Christ is a king. He has a kingdom. Christians are citizens of his kingdom. He is our king. But Christ does not govern his people by power. He governs by truth and by love. He doesn't govern by authority. He governs by winning the hearts and minds of people. And he earns our love and our loyalty in return. We serve our king not out of fear, but out of love. That's so different from kings and presidents in our world today. And the kingdom of Christ is not fundamentally in conflict with governments and kingdoms on earth, provided governments do not cross the line and start to take the place of God which sadly some do. 
Christians are often persecuted because governments think we want power, we want Christian influence over the government. But that's not the case. And Christians need to be careful to demonstrate that we are not interested in wielding political power or political influence. So if Christ was not coming to Jerusalem to seize political power, why did he come? Well, the second section of our passage this morning explains this. He planned to come as king to die. That is the reason he came. That is his key purpose. Now, that would seem alien to what any king or president would do. So why would Christ see it as his key mission to die? What good does it do? What good would it do? Now, notice the, the lead-in to this section in verse 19. The Pharisees are complaining at the, the welcome that Jesus is receiving, and they say, look, the whole world has gone after Christ. And as though to prove his point, the very next words are, there were some Greeks who had come to Jerusalem, and they wanted to meet with Jesus. People from overseas Uh, and particularly from Greece. This delegation of Greeks uh, were a representative, really, of the Greek culture that we know quite a lot about. The Greeks had a much greater appreciation of the wisdom of the Lord, much greater than the Jews ever showed. The Greeks appreciated wisdom. The city of Athens got its name from the goddess Athena, the goddess, the so-called goddess of wisdom. Wisdom and philosophy was key, central to the identity of Greeks. They were proud of their love of wisdom. And it has been suggested that these Greeks planned to invite Jesus to come to Greece where he would be welcomed, where he would be appreciated, where he would have be able to stand in the continuing tradition of the earlier Greek philosophers like Socrates and Aristotle. But Christ responded to their request for an audience with him in what seems a strange way. He immediately speaks about his death. What is the connection? Christ is not a philosopher. He is wiser than any philosopher that has lived, but the philosophy and wisdom of the Greeks could never save anyone or give people new life. And the Greeks' pride and trust in their wisdom had to be undermined and had to be broken if they were to be saved. Later in the New Testament, we read that Paul wrote a letter to Greeks in a city of Corinth. And he he says this about Greeks. He says, Greeks seek after wisdom. But when I came to preach to you, I preached Jesus Christ crucified. He says to them, that to you, to Greeks, may seem a foolish thing. Why should the Messiah die? But he says, the cross of Christ is the power of God. If you want to see a demonstration of God's power, he says, you should look at the cross And we can trace Paul's strategy at Corinth back to Christ's response here in John chapter 12, his response to the Greeks who, first of all, came to the Lord Jesus, and he spoke about his death. But when you think of it, the death of Christ has changed more lives, millions of lives, down through history, 
more lives than any philosophy. I've never heard of someone going to study philosophy at university, going as an alcoholic or as a drug addict, and coming out of their course a transformed person. I've seen them go the other way round, come out drug addicts and alcoholics after studying philosophy. But the death of Christ has transformed millions of lives. People whose lives are lost, people who live meaningless and pointless lives, and through the death of Christ, they have had their lives transformed. Now, how does Christ view his death in this passage? Well, the Lord Jesus describes his death not in terms of a sacrifice for sins, although it was that, but nor does he view it as an unfortunate, inevitable accident. But instead, he describes his act of dying as sowing a seed, planting a seed, which would grow and produce fruit. He said, truly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. The Lord Jesus here is referring to a principle uh, which has been built into creation from the very beginning, the principle of death and resurrection. In Genesis 2, when it's describing the trees, uh, even in Genesis 1, it always talks about trees producing seeds. Seeds were important, even in a perfect world. And in a perfect world, seeds had to be planted in the earth. They had to die, but what came from them was new life. It came a tree that produced fruit and many more seeds. And that was how Christ was viewing his forthcoming death. Not as something heroic but pointless. Rather, it was the only way to produce eternal fruit. Just think of how many people across the world and down through history now have an eternal future because Christ laid down his life like a seed and died. We, as Christians, are the fruit which has been produced as a result of Christ laying down his life like a seed. That was Christ's response to the Greeks seeking an audience with him, not being deflected from his mission, but seeing it positively as a means of achieving eternal fruit across the world and down through history. And John ends this section with uh, quite a detailed discussion of why some people find it hard to believe in Jesus. Of course, there are lots of different reasons why people find it hard to put their trust in Jesus. But here, John focuses, I would say, on one specific reason. And I could sum it up by saying that there are some people who find it hard to openly come to faith in Jesus because they have a completely wrong concept of the glory of Jesus. Now, what, what is glory? I'll explain in a moment why I think this is a key thing. But what is glory? It's not a word that we use very much in everyday English. If I could put it rather crudely, the glory of a person is what makes us, when we see them, we go, wow, they're awesome. When we see something about them that just takes our breath away, 
what we are seeing is their glory. What is glorious about them? And a person's glory is what causes others to honor them, to give them honor and praise. And when we give someone like that our honor and praise, we are said to be giving them glory and the person is being glorified. Now, if you had the opportunity to meet the President of the United States or the President of China or the President of Russia, you might well be in awe of them because of the vast power they have. They just have to give the word and all the resources of their vast country are at their disposal. And many people think that is awesome. That is their glory. And many people think that a person's glory resides in how much power they have. Now, what do you think is glorious? Ordinary mortals like us, we don't have any real power. But perhaps we sometimes think that glory lies in being famous or being a sports star or being a celebrity or being wealthy or being beautiful. I wonder, just privately, do you ever imagine situations where you do something great and people in your imagination go, wow, he is awesome or she's glorious? No. I'd not ask you to put up your hand if you ever have dreams and fantasies like that. But if you do, that gives you a clue as to what you think glory is in a person. Many of those things are not wrong in themselves and can even be quite good. But those dreams reveal our concept of what is glorious. And what is Christ's glory? What is glorious about the Lord Jesus Well, throughout this passage, John talks a lot about the glory of Christ and when he was glorified. In verse 16, we read, only after Jesus was glorified. In verse 22, he says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Verse 28, Father, glorify your name. Then a voice from heaven said, I have glorified it and will glorify it again. Verse 41 Uh, John says that Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory. And in verse 43, he talks about some people who loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. So in this passage, what is glorious about Jesus is his death. Not just the fact that he died, but the horrific way he died. In particular, the fact that he was lifted up in public on a cross. A humiliating and painful death. It was a public execution. And more than that, he was taking upon himself the punishment for all the sins of the whole world. We do not naturally think that that is glorious. People don't, particularly non-Christians, People who do not know Christ, when they read about the crucifixion, they do not go, wow, that's awesome. But after the Lord Jesus died, was raised again, and when he was returning to heaven, we were reading this morning a passage from the Psalms that describe how heaven responds to the Lord Jesus after the cross as he returned to heaven. And in just four verses, five times, the Lord Jesus is described as the king 
of glory. The epitome, the high point in the history of our universe of glory. And when heaven watched the Lord Jesus go to the cross to take the punishment for the sins of the whole world, heaven did say reverently in hushed tones, wow, that is awesome, that is magnificent. As Christians, when we fully understand why Christ went to the cross for us, each of us personally, to bear our sins, we do honor Christ above everyone else because we recognize that is true glory. That's far more glorious than even have, than having mere power or wealth. It's more glorious than getting promotion in work, more glorious than being a celebrity or being popular or being regarded as cool or beautiful. When we have a true understanding of what is really glorious in God's sight, then it becomes easy to believe in Jesus. It's easier to be open about being a Christian. When John wants to speak about the glory of Christ in this section at the end, he uses the words of Isaiah. He quotes from Isaiah 6 and from Isaiah 53, from the first half of Isaiah and from the second half of Isaiah. Just in passing, I'll mention that this knocks on the head what some uh, secular scholars would say, that there were two writers of the book of Isaiah. Uh, Here, Scripture tells us quite clearly there was just one author, Isaiah. And in particular, John quotes the start of Isaiah 53. Now, that's an interesting part, because there the prophet feels almost the frustration of Christ that having presented the glorious message, his own people do not believe him. He says, who has believed our report? And the prophet tries to explore why it is that the Jewish people did not put their faith in Jesus. Isaiah was considering this 700 years ahead of its time. And he traces their unbelief to the fact that they had a totally wrong concept of what is great and what is glorious. Isaiah quotes the people's thinking and said, he had no beauty that we should desire him. He often suffered, and they thought anybody who suffers must have done wrong. He was a man of sorrows. People even despised him. He was no celebrity. And particularly when he was suffering on the cross, the Jews thought he was being punished by God. And they said, how could you put your faith in someone like that? But Isaiah goes on to highlight what John highlights, that the very fact that the Son of God was prepared to come into this world to lay aside his beauty and his power, he allowed himself to be despised and rejected And he came to bear the punishment which we deserve. That, says the prophet Isaiah, is true greatness. That is true glory. And he ends that prophecy by saying, Therefore I will divide him a portion with the great. The person that Isaiah looked forward to uh, describing Jesus and the glory of Jesus was among, he says, I place him among the greatest of those who have ever lived. And so the inability 
of people to appreciate what is real greatness lies behind the difficulty that some people have in trusting Jesus as their saviour. And in the last verses of this chapter, Jesus particularly speaks to those, some of them who had believed in him, but who wanted to keep their faith very private. Surprisingly, John tells us that a good number of the Jewish leaders did put their faith in Jesus. But they were afraid that they would lose their jobs if they uh, admitted that they were believers. They were afraid that they, their status as religious Uh, senior religious figures would be undermined and they would be put out of the synagogue. John says, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it. And here's what he says, for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Their problem was they thought that promotion, social status, respect by your peers, That is real glory. But the glory that Jesus had of bearing punishment, of suffering, they thought that's not real glory. And it's only when people are prepared to recognize that what Jesus did on the cross is awesome, is glorious, then we're not ashamed to admit that we are believers in the Lord Jesus. There were two people in particular John tells us about later, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. They were secret Christians. But when they saw the Lord Jesus on the cross, lifted up in front of everyone, bearing that punishment, they saw that and recognized that is real glory. That's true glory. And at that point, they then publicly took their place as believers as they buried the body of Jesus. They exchanged the honor from men for honor from God. And those two men are honored to this day because they did that. All those who preferred to hold on to their their position, their social position, we don't even know their names. They're not spoken of now. So in this chapter, this journey to Jerusalem, we're going to be seeing what is glorious about the Lord Jesus. Not through him wielding power, but through how he endured suffering. And I trust that that will be an inspiration to us all. That we ourselves will show that same glory in our lives. Not necessarily by being more successful than others, but by how we respond, particularly to suffering even in our own lives.